Pardon me. Earlier this month, the uh, southeastern portion of the United States was <clears throat> brought under a severe hurricane watch. You remember, Hurricane Matthew was threatening coming up the coast and uh, <clears throat> making landfall, and the estimates of damage, property damage, and loss of life were really pretty catastrophic. In the mercy of God, the storm didn't materialize as severely as some had anticipated. And so the damage and loss of life was nowhere as near what it could have been. But it was a very uh, significant event. Uh, hurricanes are nothing to mess around with. I, uh, I myself, my family and I have uh, been through one hurricane back in 1985 we were in uh, Massachusetts when uh, Hurricane Gloria uh, passed through, and uh, it, was, it was pretty devastating. But one of the things about a hurricane as it goes through is this phenomenon known as the eye of the storm. The hurricane comes through, and its leading edge is, is very powerful and very devastating, and then there is this period of calm depending on the size of the storm, of course, the, is the size of the eye, and it has to do with the way the, the winds are circling and so forth, and it's a, it's a period of relative calm. And actually, in this particular case with Hurricane Gloria, we, uh, we did what we were not supposed to do, but what all our neighbors were doing, which is we went out uh, to experience this phenomena because the wind had been just blowing ferociously, tearing down tree limbs, and and uh, down torrential rain and all of that sort of thing. And then all of a sudden there was bright, blue, clear sky and the sun was shining. And it, and it was so dramatic, the, the uh, difference. Uh, but off in the distance, you, know, you could begin to, to see the, um, the other side of the storm coming. So we made our way quickly back into the house and shut it all back down again. And, and endured the, uh, the remainder of that storm as it passed through. And I tell you that account because I think it kind of illustrates uh, where we are right now as a society, as a culture, uh, as an economy. In 2008, the leading edge of a devastating economic storm passed over us and it brought about all kinds of, of uh, suffering and damage. And now we are in essentially the eye of that storm. It appears as though things are okay, but things are not okay. The backside of that storm is coming, and it is coming quickly. And when it comes, it will be far worse than what has come before. Beloved, in 2009, our national debt was $10.6 trillion. In the last eight years, during this lull in the storm, we have increased that debt to $19.7 trillion. The reason it seems like everything is okay is because we have not yet reached the limit on our national credit card. 
We are continuing to borrow and spend and pretend that everything is fine. But debt has a funny way of catching up to you. And it is catching up to us. We have a presidential election in less than three weeks. And the major candidates of both parties have not a clue what to do. This debt is now going ballistic. It is likely, in eight years, it has nearly doubled. It is likely it will dub, nearly double again. In fact, estimates I've read say that in the next four years, it could reach $30 trillion. I don't have time to go over with you all of the implications of that reality, but it is a horrendous reality. It will bring pain and it will bring suffering upon this society like of which it has not seen since perhaps the beginning of the 20th century. We need to prepare for very difficult days. The Church of Jesus Christ will not fail. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But the church is going to be placed in a situation, we, the church, are going to be in a situation where Business as usual is not an option. And we need to think seriously about all those things. This series that I have been preaching to you about living as a minority community in a hostile world is designed to try to help us prepare for what is coming. I am not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. I do not speak with the authority of God in these things. And so I cannot say for certain that the, when things will happen, but I can tell you this, I can do mathematics. I spent 16 years in banking. I understand how it works. And the mathematics have reached the place where this debt is absolutely unpayable and will only continue to grow. As we've unpacked this series, we've arrived at a, the topic of compassion. That compassion is the heart of the Christian. And the need for compassion is going to become ever greater. We need to be prepared to, to act out compassionately with our community with our neighbors, with our family, with our body, to help those in need. And so this morning, picking up from last week, we have four observations about compassion that are of a growing importance, a growing importance to a minority community living in a very hostile world. We looked at the first of them last week, and it was compassion is the culture, or was the culture of Israel. Compassion was the culture of Israel. And we spent about it, oh, virtually the whole morning last week unpacking what that meant. God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. 
He took them into the desert to the base of Mount Sinai and there he established a covenant with his people. Thereby, he would be their God and they would be his people. The terms of that covenant were given there to the people. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. And that covenanted community with the Mosaic law that covered every aspect of their lives was the basis under which God took them into the promised land that he had prepared for them. Woven deeply into the fabric of that Mosaic law is the compassionate heart of God. And we spent the time last week looking at that. How God built into their covenant law practical acts of compassion to care for those who are in need. And we said that there are principles that can be drawn from that. And I want to look at some of that with you this morning. The second observation, and this is where the material begins to be new, is that compassion was the model of the early church. Compassion was the culture of Israel. Compassion was the model of the early church. This compassionate heart of God carries over from the Old to the New Testament, and we should expect that. For God does not change. His character does not change. The way he expresses that character may change dispensationally, but the fundamental character of God does not change. And so we should expect to see in the New Testament that heart of God played out again. And that's what we find. And so we find woven into the New Testament approach to poverty and deprivation, these basic principles. And I mentioned them to you in closing last time. First was that stewardship is not ownership, (coughs) pardon me, of resources. Stewardship is not ownership. God owns it all. He owned the promised land and lent it to his people. God owns everything. I do not own anything. You do not own anything. God owns it, and it is on loan to you and me as a steward for God. And it is required of a steward first that they be found faithful. Secondly, established in the Old Testament law and reflecting the heart of God is work, not welfare. Work, not welfare. And that is because Work is essential to our humanity. It is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And as we work, we express that reality. God works. He created us to work. Work is not a result of the fall. It is not a punishment, even though as a child you may have thought it to be so. Work is a privilege. And so as we care for those in need, we must make sure that we do not deprive them of their essential humanity by depriving them of the opportunity to work. Third, (coughs) generosity, not judgment. Generosity and not judgment. People find themselves in difficult situations for all kinds of reasons, some of which are due to their own mismanagement, 
foolish and sinful decisions. There's no question about that. Others find themselves in this way because of circumstances beyond their control. But in any case, the heart of God is a heart of generosity. All of us are in the fix we are spiritually dead in our trespasses and sin and guilty before God and yet God in his mercy extends himself in Christ. And that principle of generosity is the heart of God. It inhabits all of his character and it plays itself out in the realm of generosity and it must among his people as well. So with that as a foundation, let's begin to take a look at what the New Testament teaches specifically. I don't know how far I'm going to get this morning. I'm looking at the clock and I'm fighting, as you can probably tell, with uh, half a tank of gas. So uh, let's see how we do. As we look at what the New Testament has to say, and we, we just can't look in detail at every single passage to be sure, but what I want to do is I want to look briefly at a New Testament model of compassion. And I want to look at it from four angles. Okay, so four angles of a New Testament model of compassion. That's kind of the outline. The first of those angles is what I'm calling helping those in need. Okay, the New Testament model of compassion, helping those in need. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. To Acts chapter 2, please. chapter 2 is Peter's preaching to those representatives of the nation of Israel that have been gathered there at Pentecost representing 10 different nations. He preaches to them a powerful message about how they have killed their Messiah and that the only thing left for them is judgment unless they repent and turn. The Spirit of God has poured out upon them in 3,000 turn and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that the one they denied and, and called for his crucifixion just a month and a half before, they are now publicly identifying with this one. That's what it means. They are then congregated into a church. The church is born here in Acts chapter two. And how the church, uh, interacted with each other is instructive. There's much that we can learn. We see here, beginning in verse, uh, well, I'll pick it up in verse 43, that everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. It was an amazing period of time here, unrepeatable. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. This was, a, this was an incredibly heady, giddy time. The church had been born here in this amazing way. Turn with me to chapter 4. Where again, Dr. Luke gives us a, another account of these early days. Here, picking it up in verse 32. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. This was an incredible time. This was not the birth of communism. There is something much more profound going on here. These early believers were convinced that Christ was going to return for them and establish his kingdom at any moment. In chapter 1, you can see this question asked of them in verse 6, where the, where the disciples gathering with Jesus after he had been instructing them for a period of 40 days. They gather and they say to him, Verse 6, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? They believed the kingdom of God was coming and that it was coming in the person of the king that he would establish his great messianic kingdom, the one that had been foretold in the prophets. They were seeing all of the signs, the incredible miracles that were being done by the apostles, which were merely sneak previews of that future coming age. And there was this sense of awe among them all. They were selling property, caring for one another because they recognized a fundamental reality and that is that they don't own it, God owns it. And to sell it and to give to others was in one sense no big deal because when the kingdom comes, according to the prophet Ezekiel, God will reapportion all the land back to the tribes as it should be. You'll remember when the kingdom was established, God through Joshua provided the land allotments to the tribes. They were not to sell them outside of their tribes. There was the year of Jubilee to make sure the land was always returned, always kept where it belonged. But of course, in their disobedience through the years and their being swept out of their homeland through the Babylonian captivity, that the land records were all messed up. But when the kingdom comes, we're told in Ezekiel, and you can check it yourself, just beginning in chapter 39 all the way to 48, and in particular, 47 and 48, the land apportionments are restated. So they're going to get their rightful ownership back in the kingdom to come. And they believe the kingdom is coming. 
They believe it with all their hearts. And so for them, it makes perfect and logical sense. Sell it, take care of the needs now. God will take care of it all when he establishes his kingdom. That, my friends, is a principle worth hanging on to. Beyond that, turn to, my, to your right with me and take a look at James, another, an early epistle. So speaking of this same early time, really, I mean a little bit later, but the early part of the church. Thank you, sir. Thank you, that's helpful. In James chapter 2, James says, beginning in verse 14, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Go over to the right to 1 John 3. Verses 17 and 18, where John says, and this is later now, near the end of the first century, but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against them, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Compassion, helping those in need, has to involve activity. It's, it involves deeds. It is not merely Words. It is not merely sympathy. It is not pity. It is an active kind of thing. And so we saw that in Acts 2 and Acts 4, how they actively were helping those who were in need. Their theological motivations enabled them to do that. But James and John both say, this is an outgrowth of what it means to be a child of God. But does that mean then that we are just to care for everyone who comes across our path without regard to their situation? Well, interestingly, the Apostle Paul would say no. If you turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, we find a practical outworking of God's heart of compassion that we examined last time in the Mosaic Covenant where they were to leave the corners of their field to be gleaned by the aliens and the poor and the widows. We see a practical outworking of that, if we can say it this way, a, a more urban outworking of that here in chapter 3. Now the theme in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is the imminent return of Christ. These letters, again, early letters, they are preparing a church for Christ's any moment return. Well, the proper way to, to 
to respond to Christ's any moment return is to hold our possessions loosely and be willing to generously share them with those in need. An improper way to, to respond to this truth that Christ can return any moment is to decide to just sit around and wait for him to come and let everyone else take care of you. And so Paul addresses that here in 2 Thess chapter 3, beginning in verse 6, where he says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with labor and hardship we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have the right to this, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in a quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good okay so helping those in need also requires that they be willing to work for what they receive from us okay that is a principle built into it why because work is a reflection of who God is and as we work we demonstrate the character of God work not welfare. So helping those in need generally. Another angle of New Testament compassion is the ongoing care of the vulnerable. Okay? So there are those who are in need of a certain situation. Maybe it's a one time, maybe it's several times, but it, it's a bump in the road. Then there is the ongoing care of the vulnerable. There are a certain class of of people that are continually vulnerable economically. That means that they are, they are in a situation where they are not going to be able to get their nose above water. Okay? It's not just a temporarily, temporary problem, it's a reality for them. And so how does the church respond to that? Well, for that, we would turn back to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. Where Luke records. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, let me just pause there for a moment, most think that the church by this point had grown to around 20,000 souls. Okay, the last report that Luke gives us is 5,000 men besides women and children. Okay, so 20,000 souls at this point. 
At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose these men, and each of these men have a Greek name, and uh, they were appointed to the task. Some see here the establishment of, of uh, deacons, prototypical deacons, and I can get there with that. They are referred to throughout the book of Acts as the seven. So um, you'd have to take it by application that these are deacons, okay? We don't have any narrative explanation of the establishment of, of deacons. We only have Paul's instructions in the pastoral letters about who qualifies to be a deacon. But these seven are called forward in order to resolve a problem. The problem is that the widows are being overlooked. The widows then, and, uh, and I would say now to a certain sense, are the vulnerable of society. Certainly they were then. Without uh, a husband to help provide for them, unless they were exceedingly wealthy, they were going to be in a position where they really had no way to provide for their own needs. There was no job markets they could enter into. So unless they were capable of, of um, some sort of handicraft kind of thing that they could prepare and sell, they were generally dependent upon the, the uh, compassion, the active compassion of the believing society around them. And that's why James says in James chapter 1 and verse 27 that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Okay, he is not talking about uh, dropping by somebody's home just because they're lonely and they need somebody to talk to them. Okay, that is a good thing to do, but that is not what James is addressing. To remember them in their distress, he is talking about providing financially for that subset of society that is, that is most vulnerable. The people who are literally living hand to mouth. Now notice back here in Acts 6 that we have the Hellenistic widows and, the, and he calls the native or the Hebrew widows. With the Babylonian captivity and the nation being swept away into what is known as the diaspora, they were moved not just to Babylon, but they were scattered all over. Many went to Egypt and they went in other places. Seventy years later, when they returned, they didn't all return. In fact, not many returned. Most remained in the places where they had been scattered to. And so over time, they began to live in those cultures and adopt the, the languages and, and a culture of the societies in which they lived. And so the Hellenistic Jews are the Greek-speaking Jewish widows. They, are, they have been brought up speaking Greek and in Greek culture. They are here in Jerusalem because it, is the, it was the desire of every 
Hebrew man to make at least one journey to Jerusalem before he would die. And so what often would happen is financially that would not be possible until late in life. And so they would be taken there with their husband to Jerusalem for this, for this journey and the husband may die or, or whatever and they end up there without any real way to get home and rather than anything to go to. And so they're, they're having now heard about the Messiah, having believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, having been added to the church here now. They are part of the church, but they are widows. And they're in a separate congregation, as it were, because they speak Greek and the rest of them speak Hebrew or Aramaic. The ongoing responsibility to care for these vulnerable people was being played out in such a way that apparently these, these Hellenistic widows felt like they were being overlooked. So the church here could easily have been split in two pieces. We could have ended up with a, with a Greek-speaking church and a Hebrew-speaking church if the apostles had not acted wisely and put the seven in charge of providing for them. And so they received what it says here, the daily serving, and then you'll notice in your text, <clears throat> it's probably in italics, of food. There is some question about whether it's actually food that was distributed or money. It could have been money to purchase food. Okay? Now, hanging on to that thought, I want to turn you to 1 Timothy chapter 5, where the Apostle Paul adds a little color to this. In this ongoing care of the vulnerable. First Timothy chapter 5 and verses 3 through 16, and I'm not going to read it all. He outlines the treatment of widows and he calls them widows indeed. Verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. Okay, so not all widows are widows indeed. All widows indeed are widows, but not all widows are widows indeed. Okay, how's that? So what is a widow indeed? A widow indeed is a particular widow who has no financial means of support. She is the truly destitute. She is the truly vulnerable one. And Paul lays it out here. And the thing that I want to, um, to get at with you here is twofold. Number one... Uh, verse 11, he says, refuse to put younger widows on the list. The list. Okay, now there is difference of opinion, but I'm persuaded, and I think I'm in good company here, that the list being talked about here is the list of those who receive the daily allotment of food or money. Okay, the widows indeed list. And there are certain characteristics that she had to <clears throat> demonstrate in her life that she was a righteous person to be eligible for the, the mandatory ongoing support from the church for the rest of her life. But Paul also says here that if she has family members, be they children or grandchildren 
or relatives that they are responsible to provide for her financial upkeep and care. And the failure of them to do so makes them worse than an unbeliever having denied the faith. The point being is that even unbelievers take care of their own family. So in order to qualify to go on the widow's list for the daily distribution of food or money or whatever it was, this, this, this person, this widow, needs to be truly destitute. No other means of support. And then the church of Jesus Christ is obligated before God to care for her. Third angle. Famine relief. Famine relief. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11 and beginning in verse 27. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. This is Antioch, Syria. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the spirit that there would certainly be a great famine over, uh, all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in the charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Notice, by the way, that it goes to the elders, not to the apostles. Back in the beginning of Acts, they were laid at the apostles' feet. The church has matured, it now has elders. Okay. So what is going on here? Well, historically, if we'll turn back to uh, chapter 8, what we find, chapter 7, of course, is that this confrontation between Stephen, one of the seven, was appointed in chapter 6. With the members of the Hellenistic Jewish synagogues over who is the Christ, results in him being stoned in what might call a flash mob. Following that, a persecution arises against the church in Jerusalem. Verse, chapter 8, verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him, that is Stephen, to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea in Samaria, except the apostles. And Saul begins to go house to house, ravaging the church, gains letters from the Sanhedrin that he might travel to Damascus to arrest those that belong to the way. Of course, Paul is struck down by the Lord. You know the account, right? And he is wondrously and marvelously saved. <clears throat> the church, having been scattered, moves out and they move into Antioch, Syria, and there they begin to preach the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. Many Gentiles come to believe and a church is, is established there, and this is a Gentile church. 
This will be the church that will launch the Pauline mission that will take the gospel west to the Gentile nations and ultimately uh, to many of our uh, ancestors. Now, at this time, while this church here in, in Antioch is flourishing, from Jerusalem comes this prophet Agabus, verse 28, and he stands up and he says, there's going to be a great famine. And Luke gives us a historical note and says that, that this took place in the reign of Claudius. Now there is, there is secular um, co-witness to this through the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius who speak about the great famine that came. And it, was, it came in the year AD 45 to 46. It was a massive famine. It was brought on by nine years of drought. So there was just massive drought that, that encompassed that whole part of the world and it extended even into beyond, way beyond Israel. And one drought year after another drought year and you begin to have crop failure and that's exactly what happened. And so even in Egypt, which was normally the breadbasket of the ancient world and didn't rely on rainfall, having been able to pull their water from the Nile River, even in Egypt, there was massive drought. So this brought about this famine. Now these Gentile Christians here <clears throat> create a relief fund. That's what he tells us. They, they create a, re, a relief fund and they, want to, they send it to Jerusalem to help those. Now here's the interesting thing. I want you to look at chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, now about this time Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. The thing I want you to see is about this time. And the reason I want you to see that is because Herod Agrippa, who is spoken of here, died in A.D. 44. Okay, he died in A.D. 44. The famine, we know, occurred in 45 to 46. So what's the point? The point is simply this. Agabus, when he spoke of the famine, he was not in the middle of the famine. He was predicting the famine to come. You understand the difference? He was saying there is coming a great uh, famine. Now, he does it under inspiration of the Spirit. It's instructive, I believe, because here is the church in Antioch that in response to the, to the prediction of Agabus, to the, to the word of the Lord, respond by sending relief to the church in Jerusalem in anticipation of the famine that is to come. They're proactive. They're going to do something about it. They're not going to wait until it's upon them. They're actually going to respond now. Now, as I think about all of that, it, some things stick out to me. Certainly, just considering their response, it's, it's interesting to me to see how, uh, how voluntary it all was. Notice in verse 29, each of them determined, each of them determined to send a contribution. They heard the word of God. They heard that there was trouble coming. And they determined voluntarily to do something about it. It wasn't mandated of them. God moved in their hearts and they did something about it. And it was spontaneous. It came in response to the, to the, 
to the words from Agabus. They heard the word and they spontaneously said, we need to do something about this. We need to help these people. We need to prepare. They didn't say, we need to store up food ourselves and let everybody else starve. What they said was, we need to help those. And we know in Jerusalem, they're already in a difficult place. Right? By this time, the church, the Jewish church had been excluded from the, the synagogues. They, they were no longer able to meet in the temple. They were a minority community in the heart of Judaism. And so spontaneously and voluntarily and immediately, I would say, notice they sent it in charge of Barnabas and Saul. Immediately, they sent out help. And this is a beautiful thing, beloved, because this is, this is a, a Gentile church. And so what this is, is it's a visible description or, or um, display of the unity of the body of Christ. It's not some Jewish believers saying we've got to take care of our Jewish friends. This is Gentile believers saying we're one body in Christ and we need to provide for these people. And we need to do it now. And so they do. We see this kind of attitude expressed later historically in Romans chapter 15. And by the way, that famine was so severe that the church in Jerusalem just continued to suffer and be in need of continual, continual relief efforts. And so the Apostle Paul's ministry in his second and third missionary journeys also included the collection of relief funds to take to Jerusalem to care for the people. Here in chapter 15 of Romans, he speaks of that. And he says, uh, verse 25, he says, now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints from Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so and they are indebted to them for if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, they are indebted to minister to them also in material things. Therefore, when I have finished this and have put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. So what is Paul saying here in Romans? He is saying that the Gentile churches, out of love, notice this uh, where he calls it in verse 28, uh, this fruit of theirs, this fruit of love, they are going to make a contribution, verse 26, literally a koinonia, okay, it's the word koinonia, it's the, it's the idea of a participation or a fellowship or a communion. They, these Gentiles, are going to be, are so identified with the Jewish Believers, because why? Well, because as Gentiles, we be, we believe on that Jewish Messiah. We are un, you know we are united in one body. That we're going to care for them. They say. And so, even in Greece, Macedonia and Achaia, the two main provinces of Greece, these folks are putting aside money in order to care for the believers back in Jerusalem. So this idea of ongoing. Famine relief runs all through the pages of the New Testament. Fourth and final angle for this morning. I call it the principles for compassionate giving. And they're, they're really simple. For this, uh, turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8.
Paul is writing here in 2 Corinthians to the church at Corinth in anticipation of coming to them and picking up the, the monies that they have promised they were going to set aside for the famine relief in Jerusalem. And uh, Paul is uh, not 100% sure that they're really going to follow through on what they said they'd do. So he's writing ahead of time in order to make sure that he moves them to action. And when he gets there, there's actually some money that's been set aside. And it's, it's not just wishful thinking or good intentions or promises that don't get fulfilled. So he writes to them here. And he, he begins by, in chapter 8, by um, bringing forth the, the, um, the model of the churches in Macedonia in, cha in chapter 8 and verse 1. And he says how poor they were, but they... They gave themselves to God, and they have made a generous collection. In fact, they were begging to, to be able to give more. And he's, he's looking to motivate the wealthy Corinthian church. But interestingly, he says here in verse 12, For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So he's talking about the principles of, of compassionate giving here. He says, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being supply, a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. Chapter 9, verse 7, he says, Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. The New Testament does not prescribe percentages of giving. It does not establish fixed amounts to give. The Old Testament law did have percentages. The New Testament does not. The principle in the New Testament is, is that we are to give um, out of a cheerful heart, not because somebody twisted our arms, and we should give in accordance to what we have purposed before God, so that, back to verses 12 to 15, there might be equality, equity, balance, equilibrium. Now, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? Does that mean, again, that we should give until, every, you know, until we level it all out and everybody is at the same financial level? No. That's not what Paul is after here. The, the equilibrium here is not a mathematical formula to say that, you know, I've got 52% and you've got 48 so you know, I need to lower my standard of living by 2% and you need to increase your, you know, I'll give you 2% and yours will come up. That's not what he's talking about. What he is saying here is the equilibrium is that some people were out of equilibrium when some people are starving and other people are building bigger barns to store their stuff. We're not in balance. We're out of equilibrium. And he illustrates that reality out of the sharing of the manna in verse 15, right? Where some were able to gather more and some didn't, weren't able to gather enough for their whole family and those who gathered more shared with those who needed it in order that everybody had enough to eat, okay? That's the equilibrium he's after. So that 
is a principle for compassionate giving in the New Testament, is that if we have more than we need and we see someone else who's starving, right, a brother who is starving, then we need to make sure that we give to that brother enough so they can eat. Not as James 2 calls out to say to them, right, be warmed, be filled, and be gone. Okay? Or to care for that person. So, beloved, this is the basic teaching of the New Testament. Next week, and I had no intention of this turning into three, but I didn't have the energy to talk fast enough to cram it all in. So next week we will come back and we will look at two more, okay? And they are this, compassion necessitates preparation. So we will come back and talk about preparation. And then finally we will look at compassion has to extend beyond this age to the age to come, okay? So let me pray and may the Spirit of God use his word where it needs to be used in every one of our hearts. Some of us need to, uh, to be softened. Some of us need to, to become wiser in how we approach these things. All of us need to prayerfully think about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together in the word this morning. Thank you that through your word, by your spirit, we hear from the living God. We hear from you. May you apply the truth of your word in each of our hearts where it is needful. Where we are weak in faith, O oh Lord, may you enable us to, to grow strong. Where we are self-independent and self-reliant, may you humble us. They'll recognize that apart from you, we can do nothing. And may you unite us together as a body in Christ that we would be a community of believers in which there would be not one person here in our midst who would go without when it lies within our ability to do something about it. Our Father, as the, the, dark, the darkening clouds gather and the day grows near, we have no idea how we're going to be challenged. But Father, we do know this that hard days are coming. May you prepare your people to be a light on a hill, to be that bright diamond against that dark black velvet, that the gospel would shine out, and that men and women and boys and girls would come, would flock to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where they may find eternal redemption. We ask it in his name, amen.